This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, help, I've written a book. What to do next if you want to be published. <laughs> I really like the drama you inserted into that. It's like, Did help. you not feel like that when you finished a book? <laughs> I feel like that every time. <laughs> Your experiences are not universal. No, it's, it's just the, oh God, what am I doing? It's, it's like, you know, most people are like, oh no, I've spilt my coffee on my laptop. Instead, it's just, you sort of go, oh God, I've written a book. Oh no, what do I do next? Actually, it's really funny you should say that because help, I've written a book is kind of something that happens a lot when I don't intend to write a book and I just intend to write a short story or something for Christmas. Yes, so. it, it is actually something that genuinely does happen to you, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, in all seriousness, um, today we're going to be looking at what is the next step after you have written a book and now you want to look at getting published. Um, and it is a question that the both of us get asked a lot um, in our sort of different capacities. Obviously, I'm a lecturer and Jules um, works at a library um, where a lot of authors uh, will can be found grazing. Um, <laughs> in the wild. In the wild. <laughs> <laughs> on the books no um but i know that jules gets a lot of sort of emails about this and i get asked a lot about it um and the fact of the matter is is that unfortunately there isn't a simple answer um at least not if you are trying to give a fair answer if someone says oh the simple answer is this then um sorry fam that's like saying how do i cook a, a beef bourguignon someone says oh you know just grab a pan grab some beef and pop it in there with some red wine um unfortunately there are a few more steps to it than that yeah um, and a small caveat here um and i can say this from personal experience as well but if you've tuned into this episode hoping for shortcuts or reassurances that writing and publishing a book is easy or it's a a, a reliable get rich quick scheme well you're probably going to be disappointed with us there yes that being said um, hopefully um, this will actually be a helpful episode um, and can get you started um, at least on the right sort of path so we're not trying to discourage you or say this is impossible for you at all we're also not trying to say that it isn't actually a way of making money because it absolutely is but there are lots of kind of different sort of pathways that you can get through um, lots of things to consider so um, you know uh, we should um <laughs> we should kind of get started with it um similarly though i should say that if you are again approaching this thinking that the hard bit is over um then our advice is not about to make you particularly happy though again f- from this point onwards depending on how you decide to follow through with this uh, some paths might be easier for you and some paths might be harder. So it's worth knowing what your options are so that you can actually decide which way you want to go. Um, yeah. And the important thing is that we're going to try and be as honest and provide as practical advice based on our, you know, our decade of experience. 
each. Yeah. Um, what you decide to do with this is entirely up to you. But hopefully um, you will actually sort of leave the episode not feeling disappointed, um, but will instead leave it feeling, okay, I know more, um, and maybe even excited as you get started on the next leg of your journey. It's like a mountain climb, okay? You've climbed one, the first ridge, now you need to get on up to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I will say, I the only real writing kind of course or anything I ever did was one on self-editing your novel, which was mm-hmm. Um, invaluable to me but I was horrified having written I belong to the earth um, to discover halfway through that course it was a six-week course um, that both the authors who were teaching that course also had full-time jobs as well as being writers yeah I think I'd naively gone in thinking well they're both published many times over Mm -hmm. one of them's a New York Times best-selling author and they've both got full-time jobs and I felt quite taken aback and um, a bit disconsolate by that because, okay, not everybody who writes and gets published wants to give up full-time work and write full-time, mm-hmm. but it is kind of like an end game or that is the end goal for a lot of people. So thinking that you've written one book, once you get it published, that's it, your career is assured. Unfortunately, that's a manage your expectations thing. But you're not alone. Everybody at some point will have come up against this reality, run smack into it, probably dented their nose on it, and hopefully pick themselves up and gone, okay, so it, it's it's a, a long game and you're going to have to yeah, work up to it. <laughs> um, it really is, unfortunately. Um, and I think one of the biggest things that makes the difference is... Um, and this is something you need to be very conscious of as the first part of your journey, of your writing journey, is that one book is nothing. Um, It can be a great book. It can be an excellent book. Um, But unless you are incredibly lucky, which does happen every now and again, um, the fact of the matter is, is that that's only one product. It would be kind of like saying you were a baker and you made one perfect cupcake and it was a brilliant cupcake and everyone loved that cupcake um you're gonna have to produce more than one um and you are going to have to keep producing them the big part of being published is recognizing that when particularly well actually doesn't matter whether you're self-publishing or kind of publishing is if you want to be a writer that means that you have to have more than one book in you Um, And it's okay if, hey, if you've just written a book and said, actually, I don't want to be a writer, but I do want to do something with that book, that's absolutely fine. Um, But with a lot of kind of agents and things like that, they want someone they can invest in. So they need you you as a writer more than they need the single book that you've got. So that's the first thing you need to be aware of whenever you're starting your publishing journey, is you are looking for people to invest in you, not just people to invest in your book. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay, let's get cracking. Yes. (laughs) So we're going to assume um, that you have written and then rewritten your book. Um, (laughs) Learned how to self-edit, made friends with other writers, done the beta read exchanges, um, and then rewritten your book again based on all of the feedback. If you haven't done all of that first, then um, you kind of need to get that done before you go any further. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry about that. We have 
done episodes on finding, making friends and uh, beta reading and, you know, what you want in a writing buddy and editing your book, etc. So please dig into our archives on that one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So assuming that you have done all of those things and you are really ready to start querying your book in whatever way, um, the best thing to do at this point is establish what your goals are. So yeah. what do you want to achieve by being published? There are two main paths to publishing and several sub-paths between the two. Yes. Um, so knowing what you want to aim for will make you hopefully, your, sorry, will make your hopefully long-lived writing career start off on the right foot. Yes. Um, so some potential goals, and we don't have time to kind of list every single one of them, but, but some of them would include earning money, making a living from writing. Now, um, this is possible. It is possible. Uh, but it's hard. It's yeah, definitely. That, that simple. And certainly, um, despite the fact that a lot of people tend to think of, oh, well, the to do that, I need to be uh, making to make a living just from writing. Um, the best path is is being traditionally published. Actually, uh, most of the people who are currently making a living from writing are self-published um, or a mix of self-published um, and uh, traditionally published, and are kind of combining the two and writing an incredible amount yeah <laughs> but um, other fine. goals yeah <laughs> other um, goals um winning awards ending up on book lists yes uh getting your book into into libraries that's a big one i think um it's amazing how many writers say this next one to me they would like a pile of gleaming hardbacks on display on a display table in waterstones or barnes and noble or wherever yeah I don't think I ever went as far as the, the hardbacks, but there is something about saying, "Oh, seeing your book on the on the shelf in a in a <laughs> bookstore does make a big difference." Yeah. Um, literary acclaim, so write ups in newspapers and journals. Uh, connecting with readers and fans—that's a big one. Yeah. Um, merely to hold a finished copy of your book. Yeah. Now, none of, um, obviously this is not an exhaustive list, but yeah. none of these goals are more or less worthy than any other. You're not a sellout if you want to write to make money. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be compensated for your efforts. Yeah. In the same way, you are not a pretentious ass if what you're really after is awards and literary acclaim. That's fine too. Yeah. Um, but whichever goal is your priority will influence the direction you should go in. Yes. Um like we said, that those aren't all of the goals, but it might work well be that you have, I say, loftier goals. Like that's not, you know, like that's something stupid. You might have a goal of saying, well, actually, I really want this to be, you know, to be a bestseller and made into a film and stuff like that as well. Um, regardless of what it is, uh, <laughs> there's lots of different paths, but certainly some of them for the more ambitious goals um, are going to be harder, obviously. So let's look at the two main paths and then a few of the sub-paths that you might want to take. And the first one we're going to look at is traditional publishing. Yeah, so let's look at some of the pros. So good publishers will know how to sell your book. Yes. Um, for those also who are initially going, okay, but what's traditional publishing? Um, that basically means that's the you go with a publisher so someone else publishes your book so bloomsbury uh chicken house uh penguin etc so a good publisher will know how to sell your book as jill says um 
if you need the validation of the industry, they are the ones who have got it. So if you want your film, sorry, if you want your book to be a film, um, you know, the publisher has kind of got the validation of the industry and, and then other industries around it. So that definitely will help. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I agree with that, but it's more sort of like if you personally need validation, you w if you personally think you won't feel that you are actually published if you do it yourself rather than going with a big five publisher, then, you know, that's also a consideration and it is there. Yeah. Um, but more and more indie authors are actually getting movie deals. So. Oh, no, no, I completely agree. It's it's kind of something which is moving um, in that direction. But certainly in the past, and I think it's it's been easier for people in the past to have validations within certain industries. But it's in no way the only way. Um, yeah. And increasingly, um, it's becoming less of a kind of, of a sort of a gateway, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, if your book sells well, um, it does start to map out a career path for you, potentially. Yeah. Not always, but it does. <laughs> um, yeah, and the, the sells well part is the telling part there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's easier to get into bookstores and libraries. Generally speaking, this is true, particularly if you go with a big five publisher or one of the subsidiaries. Mm -hmm. um, it's much easier. That's a much easier sell to a, an actual bookseller or yeah. a librarian. Yeah, um, particularly... Oh, go on, sorry. I was going to say, I get dozens and dozens of um, self-published indie authors saying, can you stock my book at your library? And the thing is, I can send those requests on to the head of library services and say, you know, next time we're buying books, you might want to consider some of these. They're suggesting them to us. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, <laughs> the people you need to get your book into libraries as an indie author is you need actual readers to write to their libraries and say, can you stock this book, please? Yeah, absolutely. And ideally, you need them to do it sort of twice during the year, around about the time the financial year is about to end, and they need to spend their budget or they lose it for the yeah. following year. <laughs> so December, uh, November, December is a really good time. Um, also, February is quite a good time to contact your library and say, please stock this book. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> the... uh, but it, honestly, they will give more consideration to readers than they even do to library staff. Yeah. Um, and it's the same kind of with sort of uh, brick and mortar bookstores. So brick and mortar is a physical bookstore. Um, they have a limited shelf space. They are going to prioritise the books that they know that they can push or sell. Um, and they will prioritise books that come from, uh, you know, reliable kind of publishers or things like that. However, um, a local bookstore might also have a space which is for uh, local authors as well, because there is a, a local interest there. Um, and again, if you have several buyers who come in and request a book which is not on the shelf, you know, over the course of a week or over the course of, you know, a, you know, a month or something like that, that might also push them to say, perhaps we should stock a copy of this. So, um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah you are more likely to end up in reading group lists and awards again things have opened up and there are now even more kind of things available particularly as more things become kind of open online um, but once more because those connections are there within the industry whereas if you think of the the age of the industry means that it has sort of it's had those roads paved for a long time it makes it a lot easier yeah 
and um, again these aren't exhaustive lists but you are far more likely in fact you should if mm -hmm. you're going with a big five publisher or subsidiary um, receive an advance on your royalties if you go with a traditional publisher yeah it probably won't be as much as you're hoping it's gonna be it probably no. won't be as much as you think it should be yeah um and remember an advance is basically they pay you and then they get that back and then after they've got that back from the sales you would then be paid on from that um be wary that if you are ever with a publisher who looks like a, a big publisher and they ask you to pay money walk away that is yeah. not we'll, we'll get to but that we'll get to that later. later yeah uh, so some of the cons so um one of the big hurdles is that for the most part in order to be traditionally published you will need an agent first now that isn't always the case um there are examples where actually rather than agent you can sort of get in with a publisher using a competition so uh, for example something like uh, the times and chicken house sort of award you can end up sort of working with a publisher because they've run a competition they've liked your work um, or because they've run a mentorship and they've kind of taken you on etc that can happen but it's rare and it's limited and for the most part you're going to need an agent and it's fiercely competitive in, there are yeah. decent publishers tour for example tour.com yeah who once a year they open up their list to unagented um submissions for i think it's sort of sci-fi fantasy mm -hmm. and certainly very diverse um novellas only just yeah. novellas and that can be a good foot in the door for you and you can then get an agent off the back of that but it, again, as Madeline said, it's rare, it's difficult, it's it's worth trying, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think the thing we need to say with an agent is <laughs> getting an agent is as hard as selling a book to a publisher. Yes. If not more so. Yeah. Um, and again, it's because you're not just trying to, you know, get an agent just for that book. You're not just trying to sell the book. You are trying to sell yourself. Um, an agent is someone who is going to work closely with you on the next book and the next book and the next book. You are trying to build a relationship based on a single submission, um, bearing in mind that they will have hundreds coming in uh, and you have got to win their heart. And it is very, very difficult um, and very frustrating <laughs> for yeah. everybody involved. <laughs> um, even when you, you've got an agent, it's hard to sell a book yes to a publisher so even when your agent is the one who's sending out the book and courting publishers for you and getting the rejections the inevitable rejections back yeah um it's still really really difficult to sell the book yes um an agent doesn't mean that your book is going to be any sort of more sort of palatable for publishers it just means that publishers will actually look at it um, and again it's not even necessarily because your book is good or bad your book could be fantastic but it just happens to be the wrong time for example a lot of really really good books just couldn't find a home during covid because a lot of publishers were being a lot more wary and they were taking sort of less risks and things like that so 
it's it's just step after step after step. The next thing is that you might find yourself with very little creative control. This will depend on the publisher that you go with. Now, um, if you go with one of the big major ones, um, you might find sort of control sort of taken away from you because it goes to whole teams of people who basically are experts in certain areas. Um, if you're lucky, you might actually find a publisher who is a lot more amenable to you and actually gives you a little bit more creative control um, or kind of works with you a little bit more, but it's not a definite. Yeah, I mean, for as an example, um, your chances of having very much say at all in your cover, if any, your cover design with a big five publisher is, mm. is tiny, really yeah. tiny. Um, generally, publishers will try not to put a cover on that you absolutely hate. Um, but generally with a big five publisher, you're better off going with what they suggest most of the time, unless it's something that, that you look at and your gut says, no, that's really awful. You can't do that. Yeah. Um, simply because they should know how to sell your book. Yeah. Um, so generally speaking, their, their team of designers or whatever should, and generally they are in-house designers, um, should come up with something that is appropriate and usually it's two or three potential designs and you might get a say in the final design of the book yeah um, I'm just thinking of my friend uh, Karen Jinane who uh, she's got a a series contract on her sort of mid-grade to young adult books mm -hmm. and they've got gorgeous covers um, but she said that she had a small amount of input in the cover design in the sense of she said what she said was, please do not give me an actual physical sort of character on the cover. She said, I'm fine with silhouettes, but I really, really hate seeing an actual sort of representation of the, the character, the main character on books, because yeah. I like to imagine them myself. And it was something she felt really strongly about. So now she's got these beautiful covers, which, which have the silhouette of the character on mm -hmm. the main cover. Yeah. And it gives them this weird sort of esoteric sort of steampunky type feel. And it, they're really lovely. That's really cool. So you might, you might get a say in that respect, or you might not get shown the cover at all. Yeah. Usually, what's a bit of a, an alarm is when the publisher does not show you the cover at all until it sort of comes out. It's very unusual, but it can happen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and again, it will depend. And for the most part, you know, you've got to bear in mind they're not trying to sabotage you. They want your book to be you know, as successful <laughs> as you do. Well, yeah, because um, they've, they've spent money on it and they would like to see that money come back. Yes. Um... With some friends. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, here's a big one. You still need to do marketing. Yeah. The publisher is not going to do it all for you. Um, thinking of a, a, a lecture I went to and it was Harry Bingham and he was talking about how he, when he got his first book contract, he said, okay, um, so where's my marketing team? And apparently the publishers laughed at him and, and said, what marketing team? And that's the thing. If you were a debut author, the chances are you are not going to get a big marketing budget or a marketing team or anything. You might, if you're lucky, get connected with a PR agent or something. Yeah. But if you want your book to sell, you've got to get out there and hustle just the same as an indie author would. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, most publishers now, what they will do is they will, 
well, I say most publishers, a lot of publishers will actually do courses, give courses to authors to tell them how to do this. Uh, but not all publishers, so it's not guaranteed and you are still the one who's going to have to do a lot of the legwork. Um, yep. And having done all that, you're not guaranteed a path to success. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is that 40 to 60% of traditionally published books flop. Which is is a very disheartening number. And I'll add to that that most books, even the successful ones, the ones considered metrically a success in terms of sales, traditionally published, yeah. don't ever, ever earn out their advances. <clears throat> so that royalty advance might be the only money you see from that book. Yeah. Um, and it's why sometimes, you know, you see, oh, they got a three-figure... Sorry, three-figure <laughs> isn't very much. Uh, like, they got a... They gave me £100 for the... <laughs> Yay! Uh, which to be honest wouldn't be that bad. Uh, no, but <laughs> I got a you know a, like a six-figure sort of advance or things like that. Um, that's risky, um, and it that could actually signal the beginning of a great career or the begin or the beginning of the end. Um, and is also yeah, doesn't because... mean that just because you've had it once doesn't mean you will ever have it again. Yeah, frankly, if someone offers you a six-figure a six-figure sum for your um, first book, or even for the, your first two books together, yeah. first of all, you're going to get paid that in, in basically stipends, if you like it, in yeah. sort of segments. So you don't get it. They're not going to suddenly put a hundred thousand pounds in your bank account and then that's it. No. Um, but the thing is, if your book does not earn out on that. And bear in mind that generally it's your two books together that if it's a duology you've just sold, have to earn out that amount of money. Yeah. And they don't. Then your market value in terms of, of being an author has just gone down dramatically. So next time they might take your book, but they might only offer you £10,000. Yeah. Or, or they, they might, might... offer you 8000 Yeah. Or they might not offer you anything. Um... They might not. I know quite a lot of authors who've gone from... A decent advance maybe not maybe not six figures but a decent advance and then they've gone down to putting their second book forward and the publishers has gone uh, no and in fact the first book has sold so poorly in compared compared to what they've laid out in expensive that the publishers have decided to cut their losses cancel the contract the author keeps the original royalties that they were paid yeah uh, as an advance but that's it they don't want to publish the second book yeah and that happens a lot. Um, and the last thing is that uh, niche is harder to sell to sort of to publishers and stuff like that. Um, and to, so I should say the major traditional kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Because it's niche. <laughs> it's niche. And this isn't to diss Big Five Publishing at all, because ultimately it's a business i think the trouble is we as writers come in with our books and our you know our hopes held in our hands kind of things with our artists heads on yeah um and it's not we need to swap that and put on our our business heads because yeah. it, it's a business um yes you your book might be wonderful it might be full of life-changing prose or what have you but if it doesn't sell then the publisher doesn't care yeah because they're there to make money even if you're not for some reason <laughs> Um, and it's also worth remembering that there's a difference between uh, publishers as um, a sort of a business entity and the people who work at publishers. Um, yeah. Because you might very well actually have several people in the pub, you know, in the 
who are part of the publishers who do like your book, but they cannot make the numbers work. Yeah. Um, don't take it out on them. <laughs> no. Okay, so those are the pros and cons of traditional publishing. So let's have a little look at indie publishing then. So uh, indie or self-publishing. Um, so I, I should say that kind of indie publishing can mean that it's a very small publisher um, or it can mean that basically you are self-publishing it, you create your own publishing house. Um, so here are some of the pros and cons of that. Uh, the pros is that you get full or a lot more creative control. I mean, to be honest, if we say indie publishing in this instance, we're talking about you publishing your own book. Yeah. If you're doing it yourself, full creative control. Yeah. It's entirely up to you. Yeah. Um, you can target far more niche audiences because while niche might be difficult to sell to big traditional publishers, um, it's very easy to sell to niche readers <laughs> yeah once you've found the niche and you've reached it yeah then even if it's not a huge niche you can make a very nice living off that yep because especially if it's not a huge niche because they will get whatever they can <laughs> they will take whatever they can get um you can work a lot more to your own schedule um uh because you don't have no non-complete clauses though at the same time you kind of do have to set your own <laughs> Yeah, um, in case people aren't aware, a non-compete clause, um, it would be almost impossible to make a living as an author off one book being published once a year, yeah. unless you're very lucky, through a traditional publisher. So several authors will produce two or three books a year, mm -hmm. if, you know, if they manage it, with different publishing houses. Um, again, it depends on genre, etc. Um, two is more, is, is more usual. Um, but you have to be very careful in, with, in contract terms because normally there's a non-compete clause. So if publisher A is publishing one of your books and publisher yeah. B is, is publishing a different book in a different series or whatever, mm -hmm. publisher A does not want publisher B releasing your, your other book from the other series at the same time as they're releasing theirs yeah. because they don't want you cannibalising your own readership. Yes, you don't want to be competing with yourself. Um, that's not an issue if you're an indie author. If you're an indie author, you can drop a book a month or a book every two weeks if you can keep up that schedule. Mm -hmm. um, and all your readers are going to be doing is going, yay, more books. Yeah. Um, and it can also actually work, particularly if you're an indie author and you're working in completely different, you've got two different genres or two different sort of identities as writers. Uh, you could be dropping them on the same day and it won't make a difference. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it won't matter at all. So in that respect, it's good. Um, you have more direct contact with readers to a certain extent. I mean, mm. if you're a very savvy, traditionally uh, published author who's managed to work out the vagaries of social media, etc., yeah. um, then hopefully you're already hip to this game with your marketing. But you might not be, and more traditionally published authors are not. Whereas indie authors have absolutely no choice but to get good at this or fail. Yeah. Though some people might decide actually that this is a this is a con rather than a pro. <laughs> I have to say that um, I don't know. I I think there's something that's I I kind of like the personal side of being able to just talk directly to readers. So you know things like having a Facebook fan group where you can just drop in and talk to 
fans or whatever or ask them yeah. questions or and, you know a newsletter where you speak to them a couple of times a month and people reply or they send you fan mail or whatever yeah um, that's really nice I'm sure that if you've been very successful as a traditionally published author that you know Sarah J Mass must get loads and loads of fan mail for example she probably mm. has someone to deal with that for her <laughs> yeah but um, I mean it's just that traditionally publishing traditional publishing tends to put more layers between you and the reader I think yeah which again some people might actually prefer and some people would prefer not to but of course you know it's also things like patreon um you know people build up communities there are people who have their own discords etc um and again you build a relationship and that some people really really like that and that's definitely becomes more available to you when you are an indie author yeah definitely um following on from that depending on how you go you might very well get better royalties yeah there are fewer people trying to take a slice of the party so let's say you're a traditionally published author and your book is selling for the bargain price of 8.99 in paperback yeah first of all the publishing house needs their cut and they take a big cut on paperbacks yeah um because obviously costs etc and they need their profit margins um, what comes to you after that? Let's assume you've earned out your royalties. You're in that rare bracket of authors who have. Mm-hmm. And what comes to you? Then your agent usually takes sort of between 20 and 30% yep. of that price as well. And then the rest of that comes to you. And generally 30% of that goes on taxes. Yeah. Because tax for an author is pretty high. Depending on how much you're making, obviously. Yes. <laughs> Here in the UK. But in America, I think it's like a flat 30% no matter what. So that really sucks. Yeah. So what you're actually getting per per eight per eight ninety nine book, for example, what you're actually getting is probably around about 80 pence. Yeah. Whereas if you are an indie author <laughs> um, and you let's just say you've gone on a print-on-demand thing, which... Honestly, if print-on-demand is actually more environmentally friendly in a lot of ways, um, then you're probably making about two or three pounds a book, which is obviously significantly more. If you look at ebooks, you are generally making seventy percent of the cover price of that ebook. Yeah, which is not insignificant. Every time you say your book is three ninety-nine, you're making nearly three pounds per book, which yeah. again is more than you would get from a traditional publisher. So depending on how well you build your relationship and how well you build your reader audience, etc., and how many books you sell, you can, you can actually do much better out of indie publishing than traditional yeah. publishing in that respect. And Not you least, have more control over it. You do, yeah. And control can also be about saying putting things up for sale during certain points. Um, you know, I know personally that you can actually sort of make a really nice, give yourself a really nice boost by making one book cheaper you know putting one book on sale just before you release the second one or things like that and it's it's a tactic which is used very very often um and a lot of people enjoy it so um (laughs) and you have more control of that um and finally you can build your career your way so whether you decide you want to uh print on demand so print on demand is that you haven't you haven't paid in advance to have all the books printed it's as each book is ordered, it gets printed and produced and sent off. Um, this means that you can 
actually edit your book and then the new copies of it will have those edits as well for example which some people might like to do um, but it also means that you could say well actually I don't I want to edit I want to publish parts online I want to do this I want to do that um, it gives you so much more creative um, and sort of business control and you really can build up your whole career your whole image in the way that you want to do it yeah absolutely so let's look at some cons because there are definitely cons to being in indie as well oh yes um you have to do everything or pay other professionals yourself that's the big one (laughs) yeah um it is (laughs) a huge investment in either time and money um when you are doing that because you have to and you know we talk about having all this this control in being able to make decisions for yourself there might the decisions that you make might not actually be very be very good decisions um and for the most part you know the reason that publishers have people who tell you what to do is that they are experts in that area um, yeah. So you need to make sure that you have really done your research, you really buckled down, you have, you know, gone through, you've hopped through every ring and any ring that you cannot hop through, you have paid someone who has <laughs> or who can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean that it has to be perfect. Let's no. look at, let's, let's take cover design again as an mm. example. Um, I've seen perfectly good indie books out there and they are genuinely good books with awful covers. Yeah. Um, You should always get the best cover you could possibly afford. Ideally, that would mean, um, unless you've got a design background, going and finding a cover designer and paying them for a cover. Yeah. Um, Having done the research, looking at the top 10 bestsellers in your genre, in your niche of your genre... Yeah, and looking at what common elements are there and doing something a bit like that you don't want to branch out and be different you want it to scream that this is the same sort of stuff so that you can tag onto those readers Yeah, um, who are already invested in everything else um, that being said I'm not going to say it'd be quite hypocritical for me to say um, you, you, shouldn't do, you shouldn't ever do your own cover design because actually it, it can work but you've got to be willing to really put in the time to learn how to do to to acquire those skills yeah um or to put in the time and you've got to also be hard-hearted because you know you have then got to kind of take your hat off um your author hat off and put on your designer hat and be critical and be ready for other people to be critical as well yeah and if it doesn't work i mean the one thing i will say is if you do end up um let's say spending six months learning how to use photoshop properly so that you can design your own covers and what have you and then doing all the research and it still doesn't work and you you then go into an author group and say hey can you assess my cover and they're like oh yeah that cover's actively off-putting then you've got to not be sentimental and get rid of that cover and recover your book so in it's good in the sense of it's cheaper to do that than then pay out another 500 quid for another cover Mm -hmm. or more yeah. In fact, the more sci-fi or fantasy you write, the more expensive your covers tend to get. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because you're paying... You're, and, and why shouldn't they? Because you're paying for a piece of artwork, generally. Yes. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, it, it, as we were saying, it's a huge investment in either time or money to do it well and do it... And you need to do it well if you want to make those sales, ultimately. Yes. Don't hamstring yourself by having a shit cover. 
yeah it's it is one of those big big things because it's the first thing that most people see of your work um and it and it, in a split second it will decide whether people actually take a moment to look a little bit longer or they just pass over it yeah okay um the next thing is that there's no safety net um, you don't have an agent to act as a supervisor. You don't have people behind you who are invested in you and therefore invested in helping you. Um, now, that being said, you might turn around and say, well, I've got my friends, I've got my family. Absolutely. But you don't have people within the industry. Um, not to yeah, start unless, with. Unless you have to build them. those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you you build those you might build those relationships. You might pay to get someone to do that. But again, that's something that you have to then invest in, whether it is your time or your money. Yeah. For example, Jules and I help each other out, um, but you know, we're friends. We have invested in our friendship <laughs> and in one another. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's the other thing is you can be perfectly honest and say this doesn't work or yeah. I think you should consider this. And then the other person is also free to say, I see your point, but I actually don't agree with that and, and, and go from there without it causing a major rift. Whereby I think if you went to your, your wife or your husband or something and they turned around and said, this doesn't work, this is, this is rubbish, yeah. it can potentially, <laughs> because you're not in the same industry, yeah. cause a bit of friction. Yeah, so absolutely. That's, and that's too kind of too much to put on like a personal relationship. Yeah, it it really does. And I know from experience that yeah, I've I've sort of shown things to people that I've loved who are not part of it, um, who have value kind of as readers, but not you know, and I value their opinion as readers, but not as industry professionals, um, who have said certain things and I've and that has hurt a lot more than if Jules has turned around and said it. Um, and I know because Jules and I have definitely disagreed on certain things when it's come to sort of things with our books um, or have said, well, I'm not sure about that or this, that or the other. And that's been fine. Um, advice yeah. has been taken and <laughs> or, or kind of considered at the very least. And it's not affected our friendship. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's because we're playing on the same even playing field, whereas... Yeah, you know, where we can both step aside and put ego out of the question or personal considerations out of yeah. the question. So, I mean, yeah, get yourself a writing buddy because it definitely helps. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, you have to locate and market to your target audience yourself. Honestly, I think this is the hardest part of publishing, whether you're traditionally published in one of the little subgroups or, or whether you're indie publishing, um, is finding your target audience and accessing them. Yes. Um, it's and it's probably a hell of a lot harder in some ways when you haven't got a marketing department behind you. Yeah, it really, it really is actually, and people don't tend to think of that one being the big issue. Um, but you actually see it all the time. I see it all the time. For example, when I t ask people, you know, who's your book directed towards, and they will say, um, you know, it's like, oh well, it's fantasy. It's for ages and they'll give me an age but like over decades and I'm like okay there are some books absolutely where you can say right well actually this is age appropriate for pretty much anyone who's over the age of 25 they could enjoy it but it's not about what's appropriate it's about saying who is your absolute niche and the way that I describe it is saying imagine you have put your book on a shelf and there is a hundred people in the room right 
and you need to ensure that at least one person in that room picks up your book. Um, and it's in a library full of other books, otherwise you'll, you'll fail. How do you do it? You don't say, right, well, I'm going to try and make it look as appealing to all of these people as possible because they've got hundreds of other choices. You say, right, that one person there, that one person, that is the person who I'm going to make the book look so interesting for, they are definitely going to pick it up. Yeah. Um, it's a much better gamble um, in a world which is saturated with, with opportunity and possibility for, you know, other stories and things like that. Um, so who is that person? What do they look like? Um, how, you know, know them. And if someone else happens to also pick it up and enjoy it, fantastic. But knowing your target and knowing your niche is, is the equivalent of trying to bash on glass with your hand and using a nail and hammer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, okay, your book is less likely to end up in libraries as an indie author it's not impossible mm -hmm. but if you're asking the library to purchase a copy of your book then it's quite difficult to um it, it you know it again you're competing for space libraries are in some ways like brick and mortar bookstores yeah in the sense of anything that's on the shelf has to earn its place yeah ideally we want every single book to have gone out at least seven times those seven loans will effectively pay for the book in terms of footfall and some books don't some books go out 30 times or 100 times or whatever and those ones pay for the ones that you know what for whatever reason they don't go out um, yeah. and libraries have to be really really economical which means that something needs to as i said earn its place on the shelf if not there's no space for it yeah and it's not just about the money i mean it's the same you could say well what if i just happen to you know, donate my book to the library. That doesn't resolve the space issue. No, and I would, I would caution um, indie authors to be very careful about just donating a book. Certainly, if a book comes through to me at the library, um, someone's just put it, you know, sent it, literally wrapped it up and sent it to me. Um, I'll look at it. And I will know just by looking at it whether or not it fits our target demographic or a local target demographic in another library, because libraries vary in their target demographics. Yeah. If it fits another library, I might send it there, but it's rare. Nine times out of ten, it won't fit ours either. Yeah. And the one time I think it might do, I then have to consult with the head librarian about whether it can be added to the stock, because chances are it's not already on the system. And then maybe one time out of ten, they will say, actually, yes, you're right, that is a good addition. Otherwise, what happens to that book is it gets put in a better world box yeah, and sent off along with the shipment of other withdrawn books. And sorry, we can't do anything else. We can't even send it back to you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is really harsh. So it's best to inquire, definitely. It's best to inquire by going straight to the, the, the county head office of the library service rather yeah. than the individual libraries themselves. Because what you're doing is you're removing yourself by one step for every, for, for, for every library further out that you go. Um, and just don't send unsolicited books. And they need to be kind of mainstream, I'm afraid, unless you're writing about something very niche and non-fiction, which is directly interesting to the area. 
yeah that that library set in yeah. like a local history thing but otherwise it needs to be sort of almost you know james patterson levels of popularity yeah or it it needs to have something which again and it will depend on your local and it's why you should have a relationship with your kind of your local library and your local independent bookstores and stuff like that is that sometimes it's well i'm local and therefore there is a sellability there because it's this is someone local therefore people are more likely to pick it up because there it's it's kind of being sold as that but that isn't going to be the case for you know that might work very well in a tiny village in cornwall um potentially um or in yorkshire or, or something like that if you're kind of in i don't know gloucestershire or or hampshire or whatever you might find that they go i'm sorry <laughs> we have a lot of local authors <laughs> there's just yeah, you your book itself space. yeah your book itself just doesn't have enough appeal for our readers um and that's not them trying to be cruel it's just the reality of it um okay uh you are far less likely uh well to also end up in bookstores um so just with the library like with libraries um this is also um not just because of trying to get them into bookstores but it's also about the supply issues and this is something that very few people know about is that if we're looking at the uk for example there are certain um book kind of uh i was about to say book operations which sounds very serious <laughs> um uh basically book depositors um who manage all of it uh, and so waterstones uh wh smith um uh, you know blackwells blackwells yeah they all order from basically these two major distributors um one of them being gardeners and trying to get your book listed on gardeners is very difficult as an independent um uh, uh, and a self-published author not impossible um, it can be done, and but it's very difficult. Uh, so it can be done. You might be able to form a contract if you do a, uh, a a print run. So you have all of your copies printed and you have a contract. In which case, yes, Waterstones can order the book, but they're very unlikely to actually stock it on their shelves unless you have an agreement with them. Uh, but yeah. they can actually order it. If, however, you are using a print-on-demand service through Amazon or stuff like that, Wardstones can't even really order it. Because no, they might... don't do it through <laughs> through Amazon or anything like that. I mean, you might find some indie bookstores will, particularly yes. if you're on Ingram Spark, and they may well do, but you're, you're down to the local author thing again, where your reach is, is reduced. Um, to be honest, this isn't one that I would personally worry about too much because, you know, having a table display in Waterstones isn't one of my, my writerly goals. Um, because I think 90%, perhaps more, in fact, sales actually happen online. And a good proportion of those are ebooks rather than physical copies these days. Yeah. Um, Though. That doesn't mean it's not worth having physical copies because if someone loves your ebook, chances are they might go and buy a physical copy of it. Yeah, but it is a, it is worth considering if you are thinking of writing for children, uh, because yeah. uh, if you're writing for adults, for the most part, people buy online, um, and most of your sales will actually come through ebooks rather than physical books. Um, if you are thinking of writing for children, uh, you will want to have access you know store access because actually 
a lot of books for children are bought in stores or are kind of found in stores by people sort of looking around on things like that. So that is definitely worth considering. Yeah. Um, mainstream awards are generally out of reach. Now, that's not to say that there are, you know, if you're writing sci-fi fantasy, actually, I think you can, there are awards that you can enter, mm-hmm. you can enter yourself or get someone else to nominate you um, as an indie author and you can join in. But if you're talking sort of the big literary awards, yeah, um, there are there are few, there are very few where you can, I mean, the Smarties Prize, for example, yeah. or the... Um, you know the, the Nobel Peace Prize for literature is kind of out of your reach, um, yeah. and various other things. Um, it's it's just it's not on the cards. Yeah, um, if you're going this way. Yeah, every now and again you might get incredibly lucky, whereby you really break through with your kind of your self publishing, and then kind of suddenly find yourself on the traditional publishing path, even if you don't go traditionally published. So you might suddenly gain an agent or something like that who pushes for certain things. But again, that is the exception to the rule. That's very, very rare. Um, But yeah, it is possible. Um, Finally, um, there is still a lot of snobbery over being properly published. um, And that can also be internalised. Um, you know, and thinking, well, if I'm self-publishing it, then it's not actually being recognised. Uh, ignoring, of course, the fact that it's obviously being recognised by every single person who's who's reading the book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, Which is really the metric that actually matters. But... Yeah, but it can cause problems, for example, if, you know, you are... I mean, even still now, if you're trying to apply for jobs um, where they're looking for authors they might actually turn their nose up at you if you are only a self-published author because it's there is still this kind of this element of you're not as good or you're not as accomplished um, or you're not even a real writer yeah um and that is the reality of it i think things are changing a little bit more particularly as self-publishing becomes more and more established i mean it's Um, changed a lot in the last 10 years yeah um, but it is still worth considering. You, you've definitely got to have balls, if you like, to go into indie publishing. Um, and I think the thing that it's easy to forget as a, as a more seasoned author is the fact that that first book, throwing that out into the world, I'm not sure I could have done that just with indie publishing. I think I needed a publisher to say this is worth publishing. And a lot of people probably find themselves in the same position. Since then, I have to say that for what I write, because urban fantasy is actually a really hard sell to agents and therefore it's a hard sell to publishers. Yes. Um, But it's not a hard sell to readers. No. I prefer indie publishing for that because it's worked really well for me and I'm more confident in my writing now because I've had a lot of practice. Yeah, absolutely. I I think, as Madeline was saying, the whole internalised thing, well, yeah, you are as properly published if you indie publish assuming you're trying to put out the best product you probably you possibly can yeah um but but yeah that first book it is quite difficult i think to feel that you are not just a ginormous fraud i mean it's really difficult to feel that anyway (laughs) yes (laughs) um but also to kind of to get what you feel as recognition from other people yeah um and it's okay 
to also say, well, I actually want to be recognized for that um, and what and how that can, that can be a little bit difficult. Um, okay, uh, so there are obviously a few subpaths, so um, and we're not going to go into as much detail with all of them. Um, you can be a hybrid author. So that yeah. is someone who is both traditionally published and self-published, uh, which is what both Jules and I are. Yeah, basically the important thing with this one is to understand that choosing one path does not mean you have completely obliterated all possibility of a path. You can do yes. both. Yeah. As long as everyone's being honest on contracts and things, that's fine. Um, and as Madeline said, some people find themselves going into indie publishing, often because they couldn't find a publisher through um, for something that was a bit too niche. Mm -hmm. For example, Andy Weir's The Martian, which started out as a serial on his webpage, yeah. Um, then was indie published because people wanted a, a book of the whole thing. Um, it was hugely, hugely successful. And um, then I think he found a publisher, an agent and a publisher for the for the paperback kind of thing. Um, there are a bunch. There are a bunch of other authors. Amanda Hocking, who was tremendously successful, she couldn't find an, an agent. So in the end, just because she wanted to raise some money to go and see a Muppet. <laughs> a Muppet display <laughs> she she threw all her books out at once that she'd written she got out all her I think it was something like 12 manuscripts dusted them all off, put them all out and said hey can everyone buy my book because I'm really trying to raise some money to go and see this Muppet thing and they just took off and um, she she made millions out of it in the end Yeah, and, and there have been others, a, a recent one is Olivia Blake who writes stuff that's a bit, bit different and a bit weird mm. um but has had huge success and been picked up by a publisher. So it can happen, but planning that as a career path <laughs> is is not the way to do it. It's yeah. it's more a case of this is a nice thing to happen. And you might indie publish and think, actually, I prefer having control of all of it. Why would I want to give half of my royalties away to you just to deal with the paperback? Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Um, the next is t with small independent publishers, uh, which I mentioned before incorrectly. I apologize. Um, so small independent publishers are, they're still publishers, um, but they are not part of the big five. Um, uh, and they're less likely to give you things like advances or stuff like that. They might also be sort of, they might also only publish eBooks. Um, they might also not do large print runs or only do um, sort of print on demand as well, uh, but they will help you and kind of cover half of the thing, you know, do a little bit more whilst also you having a little bit more creative control. So it's a, it's a kind of a gentler form of publishing, if that makes sense, and also a yeah. little bit easier to kind of get into. <laughs> They're somewhere between traditional publishing and they will generally offer you a traditional publishing contract, Yeah. Um, usually a bit more simplified because they don't want to deal with things like foreign rights depending mm -hmm. on the publisher yeah um and you know indie publishing so you don't have to do everything yourself what i will say about small independent publishers is that if you find a good one and you do your research generally they are very very good at selling a very specific type of book yes so for example my historical fiction or part of my historical fiction is with an independent small independent press and they are very very good at selling uh, both mystery, weirdly mystery novels, and also historical fiction. They know their audience, they know what sells to them, they know how to promote it, they know how to cover the books 
in a way that entices the right readers in and they're very good at doing that specific thing um, yeah and there it's a great sort of halfway house i think where you will see more money back if you've got an, an honest independent publisher because they are um there are fewer levels that have to be paid off before the author finally gets their cut if you see what i mean yes um though there are a few things that one should consider with those but we'll get into that later mm. um finally there's also you might change it up a little bit so you might actually decide to go for you know serials um you might want to go into screenwriting podcasting you might want to use a kickstarter um a really good example actually of a of, of success and that is hamish Steele. obviously um he uh, we've had him on the show um talking about sort of dead end paranormal park and things like that um one of his first graphic novels um uh pantheon uh, the tale of the egyptian gods um started off as a kickstarter he did it as a kickstarter he's done several kickstarters in the past some have been successful i think a few haven't quite reached their goals um but he started off like that um he went and then you know he did you know serials online and stuff like that and that was how he began and you know and then he did go on from that obviously to get into more of the sort of the traditional publishing but that was how he started so it it's absolutely a worthy path um and obviously both jules and i are here podcasting <laughs> so yeah i mean we're not podcasting our fiction although maybe we should no. think about that at some point <laughs> um, but you, you can do I've, I've known people who have set up a podcast and it's just one person and they're not necessarily reading their fiction but they're they're almost performing it and if you think yeah. about it that's really not that different to charles dickens taking to the stage to do a christmas carol every year yeah <laughs> or absolutely. to do readings of his other stuff um, he built an audience that way and people then went and bought the books because they wanted to know what happened and he obviously published serialised fiction serialised fiction is really popular again now I mean there's I'm trying to think of what the what the app is called and it's gone completely out of my head um, <laughs> but th there's Kindle Vela and there's a bunch of others and basically people pay a subscription fee a month and then they can or they subscribe to you on there and they pay a certain amount a, a very small amount per Per episode yeah um again you can serialize things on, on things like patreon yeah exactly um which is becoming increasingly popular um for people who want you know particularly for people who give out free stuff and you get to watch the free stuff and then get to enjoy a little bit more etc and um, if you're willing to be you know to to really sort of work out the logistics you can do it yourself through your website again you need to then direct reader eyes to it but um Ellis Johnson, who was a guest on our show early in the podcast, mm -hmm. um, she had the passion project of this very queer vampire series set in the 1800s, um, and it sort of spans back into sort of Renaissance Italy and various other things. And she just, she's like, I can't see a big market for it, but I'm going to publish it in a serialized form on my website. You get the first two episodes free, and then after that, it's it's something like two pounds fifty a month. Mm -hmm. And you get a, a bit each time, and then she will. Once the books are done, you get a free e copy and a free paperback copy, and various other goodies and things, and chat books and what have you. Um, and I subscribed to that immediately because I love her writing, and I just <laughs> loved this sort of very, very like pansexual vampire world. Um, and it's really cool. So you can do it and make it make it work if you want to. There's there are other options. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, we're going to sort of finish off by with a few sort of a little bit of advice in terms of the do not ever do these and do always. Um, so the first one is vanity publishers. Um, again, I touched on this a little bit earlier, um, but uh, you've got things like um, Austin Macaulay um, and other sort of vanity publishers. Now, yeah. <laughs> um, vanity publishers basically prey on your desire to um, to be published and to be yeah. traditionally published. And and what they do is criminal because essentially they say in order to do this we like your work we're confident in your work we will publish it for you but you need to invest some money to do it and the problem with that is that very often even though you have been traditionally published it's not been done well you have not actually and and you won't see any real return from that and frankly you are better off self-publishing in that case particularly for the amount that they might ask you for yeah so basically if you get a contract offer from someone like austin mccauley run don't walk away yeah. from it um what happens is they will take your book they will slap a cheap cover on it and mm -hmm. they will send you maybe half a dozen author copies and call it done and technically that book is published yeah. Um, and the worst thing is with certain contract things, it might mean you don't own the rights to it anymore and you don't own the rights to the next thing you write. Technically, they do. Yeah. Um, because that's how bad the legalese is around it. They have no obligation to sell your book. They have no obligation to get it into stores. And in fact, they cannot do it because they are a vanity press. So your book yeah. technically is published, but it isn't published in a way that anyone is ever going to see it. I know one author who received what she felt was a bit of a dicey offer from a publisher, didn't realise it was a vanity house, but thought, this is weird. So instead of sending her full manuscript in, she sent in a washing machine manual. They came back to her with an offer and saying they wanted £250 in order to publish this book. Yeah. That is terrifying. So they are sharks. Yeah, They're basically sharks. If it seems too good to be true, it. I mean, there is... There are publishers who do like a, a cost share, kind of a shared risk thing. Yes. Um, I even give those the side eye because I understand what they're doing. And generally the contracts look fairly legitimate, the ones I've seen. And what they do is they ask you for some money towards the production costs. And they do have distribution and things. Um, and some people have done genuinely quite well out of them. But I do think that it's unfair to ask the author to produce the book and then pay for it and then take a cut of that money from the author when they have paid something towards the production of the book. Yeah. Um, there are some also that will, will publish, but only after the author has raised the money for it. So the author isn't exactly paying out of pocket, but rather is actually sort of doing a, um, a, a watchmo. What's it called? We just spoke about it. In like the a Kickstarter. A Kickstarter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're a different thing. Um, again, that's not something I would personally go for, but I do know people who've done it and have made a success of it. So um, so that's di they're different from vanity publishers. Uh, it's also different, for example, if you go towards a company, who a production company, and pay them to publish the book in terms of you've paid them to do 
like the marketing or you've paid them to actually kind of go through the logistics of actually getting it out there and stuff like that they are a company who are who you are paying you are employing them that's a different thing to a publisher who yeah. is offering you a contract um but be very very careful with yeah but which what is a basically a packaging company for one thing vanity publishers sometimes masquerade as packaging companies yeah. for the second thing packaging companies quite often still ask for a contract you could end up in the boat that Lisa J. Smith ended up in, yeah. whereby she sold all her rights to the Secret Circle and all her rights to the Vampire Diaries. Um, and, yeah, she got royalties and things back, but she couldn't continue to write her own series. They sacked her from writing her own series when the Vampire yeah. Diaries blew up. Yeah. Because she'd sold all her rights and she had no legal recourse to get them back. So you need to be really, really careful. I know you're desperate to be published, just really this brings us on to the next point always have a contract vetted before you have it signed before you sign it yeah um and get it vetted by somebody who knows the industry so um it's well worth if you're in the uk joining the society of authors it costs a certain amount um but it is fantastic and they will vet contracts for you yeah. Um, they have people who know the lingo, who know all those things, who can offer advice, um, you know, with a contract to say, look out for this, you might want to think of that, or etc. Um, make sure that you do it. Even if you are with your sort of your dream, you know, um, you know, your dream agent or your dream publisher or something like that, and they're from a very reputable company and you've done all of your research and stuff like that and you trust them and you like them, get your contract vetted. Um, yeah. It's not about you not trusting them or anything along those lines. It is just good business practice. Always, always get any kind of contract vetted. It's just... I mean, we haven't got time to really get into the legalese, but yeah. there are things that you need to have included in your contract and there are things that you might want to have removed from your contract. And if it's a steep learning curve, you can learn some of it, but I wouldn't say I was an expert. I'm no. confident to look over a publishing contract, but I'd still want someone else to put eyes on it. Yeah. And I have to say, I know too many people who have lost all their rights or have had to engage in very costly legal battles to get those rights back because they signed something that just was, wasn't was even necessarily malicious or intending to um, defraud the author of their rights, but was just so badly written they didn't have any legal recourse. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's also just a good idea to understand exactly everything that is written in the contract. So to have yeah. someone external from who you're working with go through it and explain it all, um, because... So if you if the person who it has is offering the contract explains it, they might still not explain it well, or they might word things in certain ways, or they might outright lie. So yeah. it's always worth doing it. Um, never ever stay if it doesn't feel right. I mean that's pretty good life advice anyway. But <laughs> certainly yeah. with a contract, if a reputable publisher will expect you mm -hmm. to have your contract vetted to have someone else look at it they won't expect you to sign it in five minutes yeah um, once an offer is made that offer is usually good for at least a month yeah if not a bit longer um and 
they will not try to push you to sign it any faster than you're comfortable with while you're having it vetted, etc. If yes. they do, that's a big red flag. Yeah. If you've been sitting on it for weeks and weeks and not getting in contact with them, they might say, are you still interested? Um, and obviously past a certain point, they will then draw Move back to the, the offer. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, they will, you know, they don't have time to chase you and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, if you are someone who is a little bit nervous or anything like that as well, um, this is the point where communication is very important. So if it doesn't feel right, but you think, well, but I often overreact or things like that, um, so maybe I should stay or maybe I shouldn't, the best thing to do is talk to other people. Do not try and think, d don't do what I know some people have done and said that if I admit this, then I'm admitting that none of this is real or that I'm a failure or anything like that. Never, never, never think that. Never fall into that trap. Speak to other people in the industry. Um, speak, you know, get legal advice for contracts, things like that. Um, and be communicative, do some research. Their writers will band and help one another out. Um, so it's very, very important. And maybe, maybe there is the chance that actually you are overreacting and that what you are looking at is absolutely normal. Um, or, more likely, you're right to be feeling that something is wrong and you should get out. But yeah. talking to other people helps. Um, as we've said, we can't really go into too much legalese. If, if anyone wants a, uh, an episode literally on what we know about publishing contracts, we will do that. <laughs> yeah. But basically, there are, there are important clauses you shouldn't neglect. So things like writer first refusal, which means the publisher gets the first dibs on the next thing you write. If you decide you don't like that publisher after that one book and they've got that written in, you are obliged to show the next thing you write to them and they get first dibs on whether they buy it or not. So you could find yourself locked in with a publisher you don't like. So yeah. you might want to get that one removed. Um, other things like a non-compete, well, it has to be reasonable. It can't be non-compete as in you're writing a fiction book and a non-fiction book and you're not allowed to publish the non-fiction book until the fiction book is out. That's unreasonable, for example. Yeah. Um, dissolution clauses always have a dissolution clause there should be a way for you to amicably split up with your publisher without it turning into a huge legal battle yes um, and to be honest again a lot of um, major publishers and stuff like that will want to have that as well because they want to amicably be able to get rid of you, get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> you're not selling as much as we thought you were so bye bye yeah. in the um, nicest possible way be very careful of selling your rights. Um, there are certain situations, um, and this is something, again, if you have an agent, they will tend to look after your rights for you. Um, but, and sometimes there will be certain rights where if you if you are with a, a good sort of publisher or things like that, they will say, we want these rights and we want these rights and we want these rights. And you might be able to negotiate it, but don't just sort of black, you know, don't just sort of write, all of it gone, I'm going to sell it. Keep hold of some of your rights, um, but also don't sit it, Don't sit on your rights because there are some people who can do more with them than you can. <laughs> yeah, and when we're talking about rights, generally a publisher will want um, your ebook rights now. They'll yeah. probably want your, they'll want your print rights, obviously. Yeah. Uh, they will probably want your audiobook rights because a publisher would be insane not to want them if they could, if they can exploit them, yeah. basically. Uh, or um, they or, or they might also want your um, translation rights tends to be one of the big ones. Which 
yeah, takes us on to subsidiary rights, which includes things like adap- adaptation for drama and film, yeah. um, uh, to translation rights, foreign rights, as Madeline's just said, yeah. adaptation for theatre, um, and other things like graphic novels and stuff. Um, unless you know the publisher can exploit those rights and sell them, and you'll get money for it, yeah. then you should try and hold on to them and find someone who can do it better. Don't just give rights to people who are just going to sit on them and do nothing with them. Yeah. Again, this is one of the nice things about having an agent is that they can do that sort of stuff for you. But if you don't have an agent or you're doing stuff yourself or you're with a small publisher or things like that, get some advice on it. Um, And also, again, you've got to you've got to be reasonable with yourself in that if you are thinking, you know, well, no, I want to keep my rights all because I want to for, for the greater money. You've also got to think, okay, but actually, can I do anything with these rights? Am I going to do anything with these rights? And can can could my publisher actually do something with these rights um so you've got to think about that um be realistic about it but also don't just hand everything over yeah absolutely okay things to always do oh wait research you've missed one you missed one oh yeah sorry we're going back um final thing don't mouth off on the internet (laughs) yeah there is, an, um, there is a difference between saying, I've had this really bad experience with this unnamed publisher or whatever. Mm. Here is what happened. Don't do what I did. And give, doing a very considered blog post, for example, mm-hmm. and just going on the internet and complaining and naming people. Publishing is a very small industry. Yes. And we tend to all get to know each other. And it's the same with don't mouth off about other writers as yes. well. Um, and again, this is something that I see a lot of the time is people complaining about agents or stuff like that um and i think you know there are times where sort of perhaps an agent has done something wrong and they've been called out on it there's a very different thing however than sort of sort of complaining about agents being rude to agents being rude to editors etc they all know each other particularly in england they all know each other <laughs> yeah um, and if you are trying to sell you'll remember because you're not just selling your book you're selling yourself as an author if you're trying to sell yourself as, as an author and you have show, shown yourself to be rude to one person within that industry other people in that industry unless they agree with you because it looks like it was well deserved are probably going to turn around and shut the door they're not going to be interested in working with you yeah, you'll get a reputation really early on of being a troublemaker and yeah. people, you know, even agents if you're do not, work really hard. Yeah, even um, if you're not and it was, you know, it just was a bad day or something like that, which everybody can have, I can totally understand that. Um, you don't want that to be how people perceive you. No. Okay, so here are some things, some things to do um, that end on a slightly more positive note. So the first one is the simple one, which is research. Check out other authors published by that publisher. Talk to them. Look at what they've done. Um, Look at things like uh, the manuscript wish list. Um, And the thing is, you can say, oh, I want to work with a publisher. Don't just look at the publisher. Look at the editor. Um, Don't just look at the agency. Look at the agents get to know what they want, what they're looking for, what their style is, who they've worked with before. Um, You spend time on this, guys. (laughs) A lot of time on this. Yeah, and research is free. Yeah. Okay? Research is a very non-costly way to go in the right direction. 
it can always it doesn't always have to be very time consuming as well um you know for example i recommend anybody who still uses twitter um follow the hashtag mswl hashtag that's the hashtag manuscript wish list where agents will post about the kinds of things that they're excited and looking for at any given time um it is a fantastic resource to be able to see what are people actually kind of looking for and it was one of the ways that i found my agent was basically saying oh she's looking for these things i've got those things yeah it's it's a brilliant way of doing it um check out publishing advice sites so my two go-tos would be absolute right to the water cooler Mm-hmm. and predators and editors if you're going with an independent publisher or you're going with a publisher directly or an agent even go on there put it and do a search on that publisher or agent and read everything that pops up yeah um you'd expect everyone to have at least one complaint or something against them but if you're getting dozens and dozens of the same thing mm-hmm. or you know if you put in austin mccauley you'll get red flags all over the place because they are a vanity press yeah um and they will tell you uh, because vanity presses, uh, you know, they're they're basically concealment predators. They disguise themselves as something else. Um, but the good rule of of thumb is that money should always flow from the publisher to the author. It should never go the other direction. With you no. know the exceptions we've mentioned before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can do a really easy search on there and just check out any that have got sort of weird practices and things that. Mm-hmm. Uh, make them undesirable to work with you you need to know don't just throw your book in and hope for the best yeah because again remember it's not just a book you are hoping to build a relationship with these people as an author and with the industry as an author so you've got to be looking at things in the long haul not just the short haul and that obviously doesn't mean once you've gone with one publisher you're married to only one publisher but you know um hopefully if you go with a publisher you want to publish more with them um at some point so it's a good idea Uh, the next is to negotiate your contract don't be afraid of doing that um now you won't get everything you want from it but you should get some of it and again a very you know a reasonable person let's say you're negotiating with an agent or you're negotiating with a publisher um reasonably you know if they want you if they want your work um they're going there's going to be a little bit of give and take they will have a line which they'll say no that's no longer viable enough for us as a business but they should actually be quite malleable to a certain extent uh particularly if you're going with a sort of a smaller one as well um where it kind of feels a little bit more intimate a little bit more friendly where there's more of a sense of people working together um you might find actually that they're a lot more kind of reasonable with that and they give there's a lot more leeway um even if you're very happy with the contract it's worth talking through it um i was very happy with sort of some of the contracts that i've signed um and i've still said is it possible can we change the wording of this can we move this to accommodate for that because um, i work in different areas and stuff and they said okay yeah sure and they made it work do that okay it can also help you pick up any red flags if someone is you know a a publisher or stuff like that is being very very hard-handed and not letting you change anything take another look at them yeah absolutely and again beware of anyone who tries to press you into signing something yeah um make friends with other authors this is a no-brainer yeah um there has been this (laughs) the thing is like i understand that 
particularly when you're starting out, you know, you kind of almost see other authors as competition sometimes. Um, and it's really important that you stop doing that. Um, you are not going to get on with every other author. That would be ridiculous. That would be like saying you're going to get on with every other person. Um, but making friends with authors, particularly people who are on the sort of around the same level as you, people who are working in the same area, um, people who are starting out as well as people who have just kind of made it, um, really makes a difference. And remember, when we talk about making friends with authors, we're not talking about saying, right, well, go and cuddle up to the closest best-selling author you can find and hopefully they'll get you a publishing deal. That is not friendship. Um, it is about making meaningful connections with people who you are supporting and who are then going to support you. Um, it makes such a fundamental difference. It really does. I can say hand on my heart that having Jules as well as a number of other fantastic friends who are authors and friends who are writers has made my writing journey possible and gotten me where I am now whereas I think it would have taken a lot longer or even actually not ever really happened at all without them yeah same to be quite honest with you I mean it could be it, there's a there's a well-being and mental health dimension to this as well as well yeah. as the practical elements of, of skill sharing etc so yes absolutely make friends with other authors yeah okay experiment with marketing platform building and do what you enjoy so I would suggest trying lots of different things and if you resonate with something go with that and then experiment with it and build on it and do it that way it doesn't have to be scary marketing doesn't have to be you on the internet yelling buy my book it can be you having fun try and do it in a way that is fun yeah and, and get get used to it because you're gonna have to do a lot of it <laughs> yes that is one of the big things is um when it comes to anything to do with marketing and stuff like that uh make it enjoyable because you will need to do a lot of it if you are doing trying to market in a way that isn't enjoyable for you it will likely also not be enjoyable for anyone else um simply writing read my book isn't going to help but actually making meaningful connections even if it's only with a small group of people online is a good and solid form of marketing um and trying out different things saying well i'm gonna start doing small videos with different characters or i'll do pictures and drawings and post them etc that doing something a little bit unique doing something which is actually particular to your book is more likely then to pick up the kinds of readers that you want to be looking at your book anyway so actually take some time to really think about market marketing strategy and don't just do what you think everyone else is doing yeah um and the final one i will say is start a newsletter and a lot of people say but i haven't got a book published yet it doesn't matter it's not too soon to start building up a list of people who like what you've got to say yeah and the following question is then well what do i put in the newsletter and it's like okay well what have you got to offer so for example my newsletter mm -hmm. i sometimes offer snippets of forthcoming books or um, deleted scenes or things like that but i talk about folklore i talk about my writing journey i talk about what tea flavor i'm drinking that month i yeah. talk about um I, I might talk a little bit about my cats not i try not to do it too much but you know <laughs> proud cat parent um and and things like uh well what have you what have i been up to the last month um things like that 
and it doesn't have to be sort of like you're spamming people every week uh twice a month i find works quite well for me and i yep. have dates when i just write the newsletter and i send it out yep. and then when i do have a, something to sell i just talk about the fact that hey i've got a book out this month you can either pre-order it or whatever or there's arcs available and it's a really good resource to have because that's something that can't be taken away from you and you should do it whether you're a traditionally published author or not yeah of course uh if the idea of a newsletter frightens you for whatever reason um there are other kind of smaller forms that you can do um you know you can do sort of an online newsletter whereas you just have sort of like a, a you run a blog or something like that um but newsletter is a little bit more personal um i think uh so it is definitely worth kind of starting it and getting used to particularly if you are writing a series or you are a prolific writer in terms of putting out several books in a year like Jules does <laughs> Jules certainly tries to <laughs> um I would also say though um that with all of those things um do always speak to your readers or your potential readers as fellow fans um yeah. not as people who owe you anything but as people who enjoy the same things as you. You are a creator who's creating for other fans of what you are doing. So you've got to be a fan as well. And people are much more likely to engage with you as the create as a creator and a fan than just as a creator on it on their on its own, particularly if you're doing that sort of building up um a readership. So bear that in mind. And yeah, that's it. So hopefully um, you haven't got to the end of this and thought, oh God, um, it is daunting. <laughs> it absolutely is daunting. Um, it's hard, but it's also incredibly satisfying. And hopefully, and importantly, it's exciting. Um, even on the hardest days, try and find the excitement in it. Um, and give yourself time to, well, brace for the fact that there will be failures along this road. Um, but that doesn't make you a failure. No, absolutely not. And on that note, <laughs> we're going to say thanks very much for listening. Uh, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, uh, do you have one for us today? It, we've both got one. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Madeline and I accidentally buddy read... <laughs> Sword Heart by T. Kingfisher together. Um, we both listened to the audiobook, I believe. And yes. I think I've just mentioned I was reading it, and then Madeline sent me a message saying, I'm on chapter X of Sword Heart. Um, and it's it was far more of, I don't know about you, but it was far more of a romanticy than I was expecting. I was expecting more of an adventure story. Yes. Um, I, I, I kind of suspected we'd get a little bit of, well, I kind of suspected there would be romance, but obviously it really did actually sort of blossom even more um i really enjoyed it um i enjoyed it on one level because it put me in the mood to write kestrel because there are some similarities um in some respects without giving too many spoilers um but more than that and as mentioned in the previous episode i just like the way that t kingfisher writes her characters they are so dynamic um and enjoyable and she has a great use of humor um the story essentially uh follows 
a, a sort of a 37 year old widow who has just inherited her great uncle's estate and this has actually caused her massive problems because his grabbing family have basically decided to marry her into the family so that they can get hold of everything and she doesn't want this and just when she thinks that there's nowhere for her to go and she's about to uh, commit suicide, she unsheathes a sword and a knight appears <laughs> who is tra- who's a spirit trapped inside the sword and basically everything kind of gets a lot more complicated from that. Yeah, and it, it does turn into kind of a, a, a romance fantasy adventure, doesn't it? Whereby yeah. she's first of all escaping and then trying to find um, legal support to get her inheritance back. Yeah, um, this um, definitely lot... plays into Jules's love of the trope, which involves <laughs> basically practical, <laughs> practical elements. <laughs> yeah, um, and obviously the, the uh, spirit of the sword and the the wealthy widow uh, kind of catch feelings for each other and it's just it's funny and it's quite sweet and there there are a few very wry moments discussing um without being preachy or discussing some slightly more serious stuff but at heart it is a cozy fantasy Mm -hmm. yeah uh, with some very enjoyable characters and also uh, we have a we have a non-binary character um, yep who is who's, fantastic who's absolute delight <laughs> yeah. absolute delight i loved that character so much um yeah so we highly recommend sword heart if you're in the mood for a cozy romanticy type read yeah um and there are several other books which are set in the same world but you don't need to have read them in order to understand it no. um and we yeah we also recommend the audiobook because it, i think it was it was actually very was, well done it was very well done <laughs> And on that note, guys, thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders. Or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.